Good to see everybody here. Okay, uh, so today is the second installment in our series on addressing global problems. Uh, we have as our speaker, Dr. Stephen Ledoux. And um, a little bit about Stephen's background. He received his bachelor's, his BA, and his MA from California State University in Sacramento. In both of those were in natural sciences of behavior. He then taught for several years uh, before going back and getting his PhD from Western Michigan University in the experimental analysis of behavior. Some of his early teaching experiences were two different institutions in Australia, the University of Queensland in Brisbane and Gippland Institute of Advanced Education near Melbourne. Um, he also interestingly taught in China for a period uh, as a faculty exchange and then from 82 Till he retired in 2015, he was at the State University of New York, uh, the Canton campus. And looking for you at a few, of, a few of his publications, particularly of interest here, he wrote an article in 2012 called Behavioralism at 100, which was an updating of B.F. Skinner's publication on behavior, behaviorism at 50, and particularly ad adept at what we're doing in this, um, this forum, he wrote uh, Running Out of Time, Introduction Behaviorology to Help Solve Global Problems. So with that, I leave it to Stephen. Thank you. Um, there's a copy of that book actually in the public library because it's hard copy. Um, let me pass, or ask you to pass these out to everybody. Uh, this is a handout that I'll refer to later because I have a, uh, a law I'm going to describe and it's much easier if you've got one right in front of you because it's, it's stated on the bookmark. This is a bookmark from a professional organization, uh, and I think they did a nice job. So uh, let me start uh, with, with uh, something that, that might make my speaking here a little more relevant to all of you. I started out with six years in the Catholic seminary, uh, four years of high school, two years of college um, in California, and to be honest, I had to go back for my Ph.D. because my master's degree was signed by Ronald Reagan and James Bond. It was California. So uh, welcome to this forum. My remarks may lead to a range of options, uh, and your interest will determine which ones of those we follow through with. Uh, although, however, to stay on topic... Uh, at least for the initial part, I will read my initial remarks because otherwise, with 45 years of classroom experience, I can ramble and we'll be here till next Tuesday. So, as per the title, our main point concerns helping solve global problems instead of following fate coincidentally. This stems from knowing all sciences, at least a little as individuals, and as a lot as a society. To start, name for me some basic sciences. Come on, this is Dos Alamos, this is easy. Physics, Physics. Biology. biology, chemistry. chemistry. Well, <laughs> we're gonna talk about that a lot. You know that, that was a bait. <laughs> um, uh, oftentimes people, Sorry? Astronomy. Yes, astronomy. Geology is another common one. Math. 
Matt? Yes? Yes? Except for my planted uh, response here um, from our previous discussions, you'll notice that all I said was science. I did not say natural science. But every one of those responses named a natural science. And we'll talk about some of what those differences are that separate those sciences from other disciplines that may call themselves a science. Uh, there are some important differences. Uh, for now, well, I just said, all right, the, the, the criteria for natural science, one of the things that makes the difference here is not only in the methods of science, but also in the assumptions that are already a part of science, that are taken for granted. One assum- and, and, of course, assumptions can neither be proved nor disproved. But while that does not make all assumptions equal, this is a great topic for another talk. Or perhaps if we have time at the end and someone reminds me, say, why don't you talk about that assumptions of science again and and we'll have time to go into that. One of the most fundamental assumptions of natural science, all natural sciences, is that we should work with only with real, that is measurable, independent and dependent variables. Let's do a little exploring, though, uh, about how much knowledge we have about sciences first. How many of you in here have at least the amount of exposure to the science of energy, that is physics, as one might get in a high school physics course? You have at least. Yeah, you you could have a PhD. But you have at least amount from, from a high school. That's, that's 90% roughly. Okay. How many have at least the amount of exposure to the science of matter? That is chemistry, as one might get in a high school chemistry course. It's a drop, a little bit of a drop. Chemistry isn't quite as common, but it's not much. It's still right up there in the high uh, uh, 80s and 90s. And what about biology? Same thing. Okay. Okay, think about those numbers. In other words, everybody in here has enough experience, at least a high school level of experience in physics and chemistry and biology, pretty much everybody. What if you were scheduled to give a talk on any one of those sciences to an audience that had no such exposure, where it was 90%? What are you talking about? Okay. What could you really say to them about the topic that they could understand and appreciate? On the other hand, what if they're still a sophisticated audience? They've still got PhDs, but it's in a lot of other things, not natural sciences. And they have deep concerns, say, about global problems, and they want you to tell them now, immediately, everything that your science can contribute to solving global problems. Think about that. How much of the answer that they want can you give them that they can understand and appreciate with so little background? To be honest, this presents a real conundrum because if you tell all, then you will likely overwhelm your audience. We have, you have names in the industry for that, snowballing them, you know, stuff like this. Okay, um, And that does not encourage their seeking more exposure, okay? 
Whereas if you tell them only what they can handle, then they're just as likely to walk away from the talk thinking that there's too little to this science to interest them in seeking any more exposure. So what do you do? Let's apply this conundrum by asking this. How many of you have at least the amount of exposure in the science of life functions, behaviorology, as one might get in a high school behaviorology course, and some study of psychology does not qualify because behaviorology is neither a part of nor any kind of psychology. That's about 10%. Okay, good. And I need to talk to you later because we're working to get courses up at UMMLA and we need community people to, to help convince them. There's a lot of jobs in the area. I can tell you stories about that. Um, so you can see that this conundrum is operating right here. I face it all the time. What to say to an audience who is interested, wants to do things, but all of a sudden discovers I'm talking about a science that may be 100 years old, but it's been under everybody's radar. Okay? And, and my interest in this is more than merely professional because my first teaching, first paid teaching job uh, in 1972 involved teaching behaviorology, although under a different name, then it was called the, the Experimental Analysis of Behavior, teaching it to high school sophomores and seniors. LeVar Burton of Reading Rainbow and uh, Star Trek Next Generation was among my students that semester. Uh, and I like to think that that the, ex the exposure to the science contributed to his deep and abiding interest in education. On the other hand, another one of my students that semester is now the Bishop of Oakland, California. Can't win them all. And I won't say which one was lost. <laughs> all right. Anyway, that conundrum has confronted humanity for decades now with respect to the 100-year-old but not well-known natural science of behavior called behaviorology. It confronts me every time I stand in front of a new audience because under these conundrum circumstances, new audiences cannot be easily satisfied with an hour's talk. So I'm just forewarning you, don't blame me. There's <laughs> cultural things at work here, and they can be changed, and I'm asking you to direct your efforts towards helping me change them. Okay, me and my colleagues too. Without more effort on audience members' part to become better acquainted with behavior science, such as reading a book or taking a course, they, uh, will they, this is the question, will they simply ignore the science and follow fate coincidentally and thereby unintentionally help prevent the science from helping humanity solve global problems? And really... Why should anyone even bother with a science of behavior? After all, all of our traditional cultural conditioning, what we all experience in our unquestioned childhood upbringing, says that there isn't any such science, that there couldn't be any such science, even that there shouldn't be any such science. And that anyway, we have other, plenty of other accounts and explanations for human behavior. 
either through our diverse range of theological mysticisms, like religions, often based on a maxi-god that moves mountains, or through our rather equally broad range today of secular mysticisms, like psychologies, that are based on various mini-god inner agents that can only move arms and legs. So why bother with a natural science of behavior? And why bother here and now? Given that conundrum, let's skip the vast but normal range of valuable reasons. We can do that in a course sometime. Uh, or you can get it out of a book, like the one on, the, on your handout. Uh, and let's go instead right to the big reason, human survival. For decades now, ever since Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, and MIT's book, Limits to Growth, Traditional natural scientists, like physicists and chemists and biologists, have noted that human behavior is a major cause of global problems and that changes in human behavior are required to solve those problems. So they have repeatedly issued calls, some of book length. I'm thinking of Lee McIntyre's book from 2006, I loaned my copy out, and I've never gotten it back, or I would have had it here to show you. Um, uh, A book-length call for a natural science of human behavior because it's needed to help solve these global problems. In fact, some of these commentators who call for this science have said that we cannot solve our global problems without having a natural science of behavior to include in the teamwork to solve the problems. Yet, while they have not taken much notice of it, such a science, now called behaviorology, is already over 100 years old. It's embarrassing to me that Lee McIntyre is at MIT, across the Charles River from Harvard, where Skinner pushed the science along in a big way back in the 1930s, and he and his colleagues and students have developed it substantially ever since ever since then. So now what's needed is more people making more effort to become more familiar with the science. As far as I know, behaviorology is not today taught in high schools, although I would be glad to help change that. Um, I suspect that wonderful improvements in the human condition will occur when most people bring to their life's work a minimal familiarity with this science the level of familiarity that one gets from a high school science course or a book or two. Just like everyone's familiarity with physics and chemistry and biology. We're a little biased here. A lot of people know a lot more about a lot of sciences. In most, not jurisdictions, but in most places, most people know just a little bit. But that little bit helps. Okay? You don't make dumb errors when you're sitting on a county council uh, uh, down in, in um, Roswell. I know some people question that, but you know, they, they really don't. You know, they, 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 they joke a lot about aliens, but, um, uh, but they don't make those kinds of errors, but they make the same kinds of errors that everybody else does when it comes to doing something that involves human behavior and they're basing it on the magic and mysticism from their upbringing, traditional cultural conditioning. 
because they don't have the science at their fingertips. For one thing, knowing more about the science would reduce misuses of this science. And unlike a lot of sciences that only get misused as they get better and better, this science has been misused for millennia, long before we ever knew or had any scientific knowledge about behavior. Misuses such as invoking schedules of reinforcement, nobody ever called them that 2,000 years ago, but they were invoked in the effort to cause people to gamble away their savings under the false excuse of merely providing them a form of entertainment. Games of chance have been around as long as religion. No, I don't think there's a connection. Uh, that's worth discussing sometime. Greater familiarity with the laws of behavior makes seeing through such excuses much easier by bringing other variables into play that oppose the variables inducing gambling. Of course, disobeying the laws of nature is not an option. Obeying them is not a matter of choice or free will or whatever. Like the laws of physics, like gravity, the laws of behavior have been around for a very long time, far, far longer than our understanding of those laws, just as in those other sciences. And people must, of course, obey those laws. Greater familiarity with the laws of behavior also reduce, even ends, the control over behavior from pre-scientific, not just religious, but also secular, superstitious variables. As a result, such greater familiarity can move people to greater support and action in the actions needed to curb overpopulation and engender sustainability as part of solving global problems. So what can I do? I'll get to you in a minute. <laughs> After 45 years of teaching this science to individuals in the college classroom, I have moved on to teaching through short courses or through books. Anyone prepared to put in a little study of this science for greater familiarity. And while many hundreds of current books describe the range of engineering applications of this science, my colleagues have described my present books, my recent ones, as the first basic science books on the discipline since the 1950s. A little supportive aside there. In about 1986, a, a uh, very important researcher retired from the Fernald School in Boston and gave me $10,000 worth of uh, laboratory equipment. Um, uh, that's 1986 dollars, okay? Um, my campus wouldn't let me bring it on campus. They just had no clue how to deal with anything like that. And, you know, it was a hard sell to, get, to show them that behavior science was a science, was a discipline. So, um, unfortunately, I was never able to get over that in the duration I was at my college. Um, so my research had to be of a different sort than the kind I really would have liked to do. Uh, but that's, that's, that's what happens. Uh, anyway... These practical engineering applications, and, and you, you might recognize some of them, include supporting dignified dying, penal rehabilitation, regular and special education, parenting, behavioral medicine, behavioral safety, performance management, 
and the, science most, the science's most famous application area, applied behavior analysis, with its interventions for adults and children with developmental disabilities and autism. In fact, the New York State Health Department is on record that these ABA interventions are the only reliable ones in the scientific literature for both safety and efficacy. But hundreds of books on engineering applications where they only touch a little bit on the science isn't going to raise knowledge about the science unless you happen to be in a job doing those things. What about everybody else in society? You know, that comes, that brings us to what can you do? Well, I, I hope that you will figure out and follow the best method for you to become more familiar with this behavior science. Uh, after you become a little more familiar with it, you will be able to analyze and interpret the role a form like this has on your behavior and my behavior. And that's a, that's a good one. Maybe that means getting hold of one of those books. Um, the, the, the one that you have the bookmark of is the easier one of mine to read. The other one is a comprehensive, jargon-filled, technical <laughs> textbook. Okay, it does have some things in it that the shorter one that's on the bookmark doesn't have that are really vital to understanding the science, like the, the complete analysis of verbal behavior. But it's a good place. It's much easier to read, and it's shorter, like I said. It's less technical. Um, uh, or perhaps you want to help me organize a short course or two on the science, which is a convenient, easy, and fun option. Uh, there were half a dozen of our uh, RE teachers who told me, I'm sorry, I can't be here. i got to teach this or that grade. You know? And so I, I joined them in telling Tina that you'd like an evening or two where they could get the information as well. That's fine with me. I'm retired. i got time. Okay? Um, I hope I have given you an interest in finding out more about the natural science of behavior. My experience tells me you won't be disappointed. But for right now, since we're actually a little ahead of schedule. That's good. Um, $9.99 on Kindle, the short book, that is a steal. Yeah, oh, yeah, on Kindle, that's right. My daughter asked me for Christmas for, for a Kindle, and I said, as long as the first book you read, you know. <laughs> and she said, okay. So I, I haven't talked to her about whether she really has it. Yes. I would say that the people who took that step, um, did everyone hear the, the question? Uh, it, well, let me repeat it because she's, uh, Anne is recording it and, and the recording wouldn't have gotten it. It's basically um, is an example of this science being applied, uh, uh, the, the change in procedure in some locales to instead of letting people or, or saying people need to opt into retirement, putting them there and they have to opt out, all right? I would say that the people who came up with that solution to fix that problem did not know that they were indeed taking a leaf 
from the kinds of applications in the science, but that shouldn't surprise us. We do that all the time. I have, um, I watched someone coming down, it was a much colder morning than this, um, uh, uh, in, in November uh, at my college where we measured snow in feet, and by November we were measuring snow in feet, okay? And the person was coming down from class, early morning class, 8 o'clock, I was on my way up to a 9 o'clock, and, and uh, I saw someone else wave uh, to them and say, I like your sweater, all right? Or something like that. Okay. And, and then I noticed them looking at themselves. And, and they, they had a ratty old sweater on that they probably used for painting houses. You know, it, it was November. They hadn't gone home for Thanksgiving yet to get their, their winter wardrobe. Well, they wore that damn sweater for three weeks. You know, oh, yeah, look at me. People think this is great. Grunge is in again. You know, what they never found out was that it wasn't them the people were waving to. It was the people behind them who had a really nice cashmere sweater, brand new, or whatever, okay? And this is superstitious behavior because of coincidental reinforcement, all right? So there's a lot we can understand better when we know the science. Um, one of the things behind the science that is not just good for it, but a lot of editors. In fact, let me do it this way. Let's talk about the law that's on your bookmark underneath the picture of the book, the law of cumulative complexity. It helps us make sense of far more topics in many other areas and disciplines than just the complexities of human behavior. This law says the natural physical-chemical interactions of matter and energy sometimes result in more complex structures and functions that endure and naturally interact further, resulting in an accumulating complexity. What it's trying to do, and, and in fact, one of the first examples I would mention is this law helps us understand the origin of the universe, Okay. And no matter what level of detail you can get into it, depending on how well-versed you are in physics and chemistry, you can see that matter and energy are interacting, and some of their interactions lead to more complex structures or functions. Okay? More complex compounds, uh, more complex elements. All right? That, that then those endure. Now, some of them don't endure. Talk to any physicist at a, as an accelerator. They're trying to count things that last milliseconds and thinking they're doing pretty good if they can get something to exist for milliseconds. Okay? They don't, some things don't endure, but other things do endure. They endure, and once they're enduring, they endure for a long time. You know? And as a thing now enduring, they interact further with other original things or things that have also come out of these interactions and are now enduring, and those interactions produce even more complex things that endure. The point is, is that this builds complexity, and you don't have to explain it with reference to Teilhard de Chardin. Now I pop these names out like that. Who knows, who's ever heard of Teilhard de Chardin? Some of you. Okay, but the rest of you, Teilhard was a, uh, was a paleontologist was also a Jesuit, and um, 
could not break from the combination of theological and scientific training, and so uh, had this fabulously interesting um, account of how complexity builds all wrapped around the theology instead of the science. So um, I, I was teaching that in, in CDC classes in the early 1970s. Okay, um, I understand it's big here in the faith and science forum. So anyway, um, think about some other examples. Any, orig- any origin of life on this planet or others anywhere, outside or even inside a laboratory, can be understood in terms of this law of cumulative complexity with no need for contributions from magical or mysterious or spontaneous events. While some of the details still await scientific elaboration, this law operates always and only as a sequence of purely natural events, spreading out as multiple additional purely natural outcomes repeatedly, like ripples on a pond. With enough time, the operation of this law builds the accumulation of complexities that are visible with so many diverse phenomena. Again, with no contributions from magical or mysterious or spontaneous events. On this planet, another example of this law involves the vast range of DNA-based life forms available for study. And on other planets, perhaps the complexities of life originate and accumulate on some other chemical basis due to local conditions, local availability of elements. We don't know yet. We're still working on that. Uh, I say we, and I mean we as a culture, because while you might not do the work, you're footing the bill. All right. Still other examples include the intricacies of global problems and solutions, the joys and sorrows of life, in the interconnected web of existence of which we are a part, and the interrelations and interactions of energy exchanges between internal and external environmental events and the body, as described by physiology and behaviorology. These interactions that produce all behavior, including all human behavior. That's a hard concept to grasp. All human behavior. Okay? After... However many years you had of traditional cultural conditioning before your scientific education, you never questioned that with respect to behavior. We probably get a chance to get into why that is in a minute. Uh, uh, All human behavior, and that helped people deal effectively, not only with behavior, but also with the place of humans in the universe and the place of the natural science of behavior among the rest of the natural sciences. All of these things are cumulatively complex, all are entirely natural. As another pertinent topic, oh, oh, it's a good topic. I just wrote a little note here. I haven't had an example in a while. Let me give you a different example. This is an example that tries to help you connect the notion of physiology and behaviorology because they really overlap a lot. The difference is, Physiology accounts for how behavior occurs, whereas behaviorology addresses why behavior occurs. What are the actual independent variables that produce whatever the physiology is that we can then see as behavior? For instance, 
you're out hiking. You come across a boulder on a forest path. This sort of happens regularly around here. Okay, things creep. Well, they move, actually. They tumble downhill. They break off. All right, boulder on the forest path. Okay, as an observer, I can see you confronting this boulder, and magically, it seems, that's the problem, it seems magical, you walk around the boulder and continue on, on the path. Now, how did that happen? Was that a choice or a decision or a mind or psyche or soul or self or personality telling you to do that? How about it was just energy traces I mean, it's a lot of, usually, wow, snow. Usually there's sunlight instead of snow when you're out on the forest path. And that means there's a lot of photons flying around. And some of them bounce off the boulder on the forest path. And some that bounce off enter your eyes, your retina, stimulate nerve endings that go on into the brain that stimulate other sensory neuron structures and then interneurons. I'm not going to go into the physiology. Uh, we don't need it to account for behavior. It just helps us understand behavior. You know, goes on to motor neurons that fire. Um, fire. Uh, it's connected to muscles in your legs that make those muscles contract. Fact is, it's those neurons firing and muscle contractions that are the behavior. But what we see is you walking around the boulder. And so, what caused you to walk around the boulder? It was the energy traces bouncing off the boulder into your eye. That's the starting independent variable. I can guarantee that if I had removed that boulder from the path before you got there, you would not have walked that circuitous route. You would just walk straight on. Okay? Prediction and control, just like in any science, as best you can get it with experimentation. So, let's go to another pertinent topic. Might be the last one we've got to. Um, it's not long. Let's consider the great and dangerous and unaffordable compromise that religious authorities dictated to proto-scientists, then called natural philosophers, around the year 1600, which has now become part of our traditional cultural conditioning as children. I mean, we're not, this compromise isn't explained to us, but the outcomes of it are part of that conditioning, and we behave accordingly to our disadvantage. When the memory of Gordiano Bruno's fate was still fresh around the time of Galileo's trials, the ruling authorities, the church, which resisted challenges to its authority, most authorities do, all right, came to an understanding, a kind of imposed compromise which those, with those who represented the developing science disciplines. In this imposed compromise, the church said it would allow science, even though it wasn't called that yet, to deal with everything that is material, that is real, as long as the rest, including human nature and human behavior, remained for the church or today for religions in general, to deal with, in spite of these also being real phenomena. But the fallout from that arrangement, the consequences we still experience in our society and culture, include both the delay 
well, include the delay in turning the illuminating spotlight of science onto human nature and human behavior. That's why this science is just 100 years old, not 200 or 300 or 400 like some other sciences. And thus, the relatively recent development of the natural science of behavior. And this helps, the, the fallout includes this science's slipping under people's radar. How come Lee McIntyre, just across the Charles River, didn't know that the science he's looking for has been developed for 100 years in, at Cambridge and a lot of other colleges in the Boston area and research labs? He didn't know. Okay? He should have. But we can't blame him. That's the whole, that's the whole point. And so this compromise, which even today's scientists, and you have to ask yourself about this for yourself, generally accept with little question, is in part responsible for preventing a general exposure in the culture to understanding the natural science of behavior. And that has prevented it from being able to provide its full and needed input in solving global problems. With those kind of constraints, the bottom line is we can no longer afford, if we ever could afford, this compromise. Because the global problems themselves have placed severe time constraints on us regarding how long we have to put solutions into place that include contributions from behaviorology, the behavior component, before we must suffer the worst effects of these problems. Um, it's just a, as an example of this in practice, uh, you know that the American Association for the Advancement of Science publishes science. Okay. In 1963, B.S. Skinner published Behaviorism at 100 in science. But that was still a time when the natural scientists of behavior were sharing a history with psychology, working out of psychology work units, trying their best uh, to, to show with their data, which was more than adequate, that that's the direction the discipline should have gone in. In other words, they were trying to make over psychology into the natural science of behavior, to finish the job that some philosophers started in the 1800s when they looked around in Europe at their, at their uh, uh, colleagues in the universities and saw all the progress being made where? Physics, chemistry, biology, astronomy, geology, paleontology. And they said, well, how come they're making so much progress and we're just talking new stuff, rephrased Plato and Aristotle? You know. Same stuff for 2,000 years, okay? Well, gee, you know, they use scientific methods. Maybe we should use scientific methods, experimental methods, okay? And so they, they started using them. But the other philosophers said, no, 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 no. That's not philosophy. You want to do that? You go start your own discipline. So they did. We then had psychology. But they never saw that part of what makes those sciences sciences is their assumptions, like deal only with natural events as real, uh, as uh, independent and dependent variables. They retained all of the philosophical categories that philosophy had inherited from theology, purged of their theological implications. So instead of souls, you got minds, psyches, selves, and a whole bunch of others, depending on how deeply you want to look. Okay, so 
In the meantime, as soon as psychology, at the early part of this, in 1913, Watson said, you know, we really should just focus on behavior and we should only use real natural events as independent and dependent variables. <coughs> and they started doing that. But every time they talked about this is the way the discipline should go, ultimately, I have to admit, we behaviorologists are a bit slow on the uptake on this. It took us 75 years. Okay. But we finally heard what they were saying. They were saying, no, 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 no. That's not psychology. If you want to do that, start your own discipline. So we did. 1987, a bunch of behavior analysts um, recognized the, the, the nature of their science, used the label behaviorology to indicate it, and formally separated from psychology. Okay? So that, that's just a bit, bit of that history. Oh, what I was getting at with science, AAS um, producing science, is in 2012, because they had printed Skinner's 1963 article, Behaviorism at 50, I submitted 19, uh, uh, in 2012 uh, Behaviorism at 100 to them. But it's very explicit in there that under the conditions of the time constraints that global problems have put on us for solving, solving them, we don't have all the usual decades or centuries to play out the intellectual uh, and uh, educational uh, typical arguments in literature, that we could not afford the compromise that AAAS supports across the culture. And they didn't like it. So instead of publishing in a journal that produces 5,000 copies, I published it in American Scientist at 90,000 copies. I like that. <laughs> that was a fair trade. Okay. Um, anyway, let's see, where was I here? Ah, as part of this, anyway, these things are, are described in the books. And you might also want to know that this behavior science has begun to provide scientific answers to some of humanity's ancient questions, each one of which could take a forum. Uh, we need to do this as a class. Okay. Uh, such as values, rights, ethics, morals, language, consciousness, personhood, life, death, reality, and today even, this isn't such an ancient question, but robotics. Okay. And you can gauge how widespread the interest itself is in human behavior by witnessing the thousands of non-scientific books residing on the self-help new age and psychology sections of bookstores and online lists. There's a real interest out there. Anyway, given the time and what... Uh, uh, Anne told me earlier, I should stop there. Uh, I can go on and on and on and on and on and on. Um, but those are really you know, things we would cover in a little more detail for your benefit. There could be questions. I'm sure if she would hope that there aren't any at this time, but I, I would rather take some if there are. Uh, we even have a microphone. <laughs>